This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Revolution Radio. To discuss animal welfare law, the implications of reform and the benefits it could impose for our wider society, we are joined by Senior Lecturer of Law at the University of Otago and animal welfare expert Marcelo Rodriguez Barrere. Thank you, Marcelo, for being here with us today. Yeah, well, it's easy to be an expert when I'm the only one. But um, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a privilege to be on on your show. Um, and my research at the moment is focusing on animal welfare under enforcement. And specifically trying to frame it as a as a constitutional issue. So currently we see lots of under-enforcement of our animal welfare legislation, both here and abroad. Um, and despite many people being very vocal about how opposed they are to that status quo, we haven't seen a lot of change. Um, my view is that if we try to sort of broaden this out and say that it's actually affecting our constitution and the way that we understand, say, the rule of law that we're not actually enforcing our animal welfare legislation appropriately, that might get a bit more traction and a bit more um, agitation for change. Can you give us uh, maybe a brief overview to begin with of the current state of laws that are governing human relationships with non-human animals here in Aotearoa? Yeah, so I think the best way of understanding our system in New Zealand is to first just except that we have probably one of the most progressive um, animal welfare frameworks in the world, which isn't saying much uh, because every sort of animal welfare framework is predicated on some some pretty problematic principles of uh, owning animals, for example, and animals being literally property. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if we say that, you know, that's a given, unfortunately, in, in, in the current paradigm throughout the world. Our animal welfare system is, is on paper the, the, the best in the world. We recognize that animals are sentient. We recognize uh, the a concept called the five freedoms, uh, which is a, sort of a fairly sort of progressive approach in animal welfare science. Uh, we recognize, we, we, we ban uh, testing of cosmetics on, on animals. We Uh, ban testing of uh, any sort of uh, research on uh, non-human hominids. There are lots of reasons why we should be proud of our animal welfare regulation. But if you notice, I said it's 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 the most progressive and the best in the world on paper because in practice it's it's rarely enforced, um, and there are lots of problems with the practical implementation of our animal welfare system. Uh, we rely upon Uh, mostly the SPCA, which is a largely non-government funded private charity to enforce most of our animal welfare law. The animal welfare legislation that does get enforced by the government is usually done by the Ministry of Primary Industries, the agricultural sector, um, and they currently have 27 animal welfare inspectors uh, for literally hundreds of millions of uh, agricultural animals in the country. Um, so it's under-resourced, it's under-policed, um, and that means that despite uh, any pride we could have in having a fairly sort of progressive animal welfare legislative system, in, in practice, it's it's woeful. Um, and so I think the, 
the whole focus of, of, of animal law is drawing attention to that plight and, and showing the problems of, of what happens when you don't uh, adequately uh, enforce or resource the system such as we have. You said we are acknowledging as a nation the sentience of all, uh, of all animals. Uh, what, what does that even mean? I think probably the easiest way of understanding sentience is just to acknowledge that a being that is sentient has the capacity to experience both negative and positive emotional states. So both pain and pleasure, for instance. That's a really basic definition, but I think it's across what we're trying to mean when we say that animals are sentient. But there's also sort of lots of debate as to exactly how many species can fit within that definition. I think that there are lots of misconceptions as to what sentience is and how far it extends. For example, lots of popular misconceptions that fish, for example, aren't sentient, that they can't feel pain or pleasure, which is just manifestly wrong and incorrect. They have significantly um, uh, advanced pain and pleasure receptors. Um, and it goes way further than that. I think that there's good research to indicate that octopus um, uh, octopuses are sentient, lots of cephalopods, lots of crustacea. So my point being is that the, the boundaries, I guess, of what are sentient animals is sort of constantly shifting as our science and research evolves. Um, but the problem with the Animal Welfare Act's recognition of sentience is kind of a, a real sort of indication of the problem of, of the act as a, as a whole. Simply recognizing that animals are sentient is all well and good. But if we really sort of followed that through to its logical conclusion, we would say that people who have animals in their control or have, say, companion animals, have a responsibility to ensure that negative emotional states of animals are reduced and positive emotional states of animals are enhanced. But of course, that's not what we uh, require of those who have animals in their control. Because if we did, then we would sort of ban factory farming and industrialized agriculture overnight. One famous author described it, the eternal Treblinka. It's an absolute miserable situation for millions of animals in New Zealand right this minute. Uh, so we can all be very happy that our act recognizes that animals are sentient and we're the first country um, in the sort of English law tradition to do so. But unless it actually follows through to progressive and positive action to improve the lives of animals, it, it doesn't really mean a lot. And what kind of changes, uh, maybe if, if we already look ahead, would you like to see to address those issues? I'm not one for sort of law and order generally. Um, I think that our criminal justice system has its own problems and that's a completely different sort of area of law and a completely different radio show. Right. Um, but I do think that sort of consistency is important. And so, for example, when we see crimes against uh, uh, other humans and conducted by other humans, we, we take that seriously generally as a rule. Um, so when sort of someone assaults another person, uh, the police will take that seriously. They'll investigate the crime. They'll press charges um, if, if that's relevant, if that's um, called for. We just don't see the same um, consistency when it comes to uh, cruelty and neglect of uh, non-human animals. And, and that's just irrational in my perspective, uh, because the only difference between uh, non-human animals 
uh, and the rest of the animal kingdom uh, is that species status, the fact that they're not human. Uh, and there are lots of reasons as to why we ought to simply enforce uh, animal welfare legislation in the same way as we would enforce any other aspect of our criminal law. Consistency is important, uh, but there are also sort of so many uh, indicators and lots of good research to indicates that say that violence towards animals is a precursor for violence against humans. So it's even in our best interests as humans to sort of try and reduce animal cruelty. But beyond all of that, the fact that we sort of just completely differently enforce animal welfare legislation to other aspects of the criminal law um, is a big problem. Because we sort of rely upon uh, the SPCA as a charity to enforce animal welfare legislation uh, as it's applied to companion animals, we rely on an organisation that just doesn't have the resources or capability to do that effectively. There's lots of oversight and an organisational structure within uh, the police. There's some structure within the SPCA, but there's not a lot of oversight. And we have a lot of very overworked um, and underpaid inspectors engaging in some really important law enforcement role. I think that really sort of starts to sort of affect the way that people see animal welfare laws as not really meaning much. I don't think that most people sort of um, realise that, you know, what the animal welfare legislation that we've got in this country requires. And there's a lot of neglect that goes undetected. There's a lot of cruelty that goes undetected. And because it goes undetected and because it isn't pro appropriately policed, people start to think that that's okay or that it doesn't matter. And that becomes really problematic because we send some really problematic social signals that we just don't care about violence towards animals. We don't care about neglect of animals. And as I say, that doesn't make a lot of rational sense because there's nothing that scientifically differentiates us with non-human animals. Right. Yeah. Um, that 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 is that sounds like a serious issue. That's not only for all those farmed animals, but but for for our human members of our society as well. Yeah, and you asked how I would change it. I mean, the simple answer is to sort of just create a bit more consistency. Yes. And so the police currently have the jurisdiction to engage and enforce the Animal Welfare uh, Act in this country, uh, but they don't do so. So if you call the police and say, look, look, I'm just seeing someone who's just not feeding their dog and it's barking all the time. Maybe you'll get an animal control officer to stop the barking, but the police won't care about the neglect. Now, if that was a child, you would have all sorts of social um, service industries and, and the police involved immediately. But the police declaim responsibility and jurisdiction. And I guess the simple change that I would like to see is that police could enforce the law just as they would in any, in any other situation. It's up to the police to enforce the law when it comes to domestic and especially land-based abuse. However, as you previously stated with MPI and how they pretty much police themselves. For example. Sanford, they get so much recognition internationally for being so bioethically advanced and progressive and sustainable. I had a conversation with one of the operating managers and I said, well, one of the laws is to actually allow the animals to express their natural behavior. 
how do you justify taking an incredibly transient and advanced species that migrates all across the world and locking it into a pen? And his answer was pretty much that profit outweighs the benefits of having a different species that would be like a blue cod that doesn't migrate, that's native. So why don't we replace it with a more satisfactory species if you're going to continue farming at all, which I don't agree with. Obviously, we should be farming seaweed, if anything. But yeah, we have these huge companies that come in and recruit students and greenwash everything. How do we enforce that kind of behavior and get them to be accountable? Yeah, that's that's a really good good and interesting point there, Alexandria. And uh, yeah, kelp will save us all. Kelp is the future. I would agree with you on that. But focusing on the salmon just for an issue, that's actually a really good example of a lot of different things going wrong all at once. The first thing that's going wrong is that I just don't think that the general public or the fishing industry consider themselves bound by the general sort of animal welfare law that we've got. And there's a good reason why they don't think that. It's because, as you point out, Ministry for Primary Industries, which has fishing with fisheries within its control, just doesn't really seem to enforce or care about fish at all. Mm-hmm. And so, as I say, it sends that sort of social signal that we just don't care. And so that becomes normalised. Um, there's a good reason why people think that fish can't feel pain. It's because we kind of just as a collective society have decided that that's just not the case because it's very convenient for us to do so. Side note, a good way to do your own research on this topic is to take a look at the American Institute of Biological Sciences, a paper specifically written by Mark Beckoff titled Animal Emotions, Exploring Passionate Natures, Current Interdisciplinary Research Provides Compelling Evidence that Many Animals Experience Such Emotions as Fear, Love, Despair, and Grief. We Are Not Alone. Um, But... Here's the thing, they are bound, as you point out, by the Animal Welfare Act. One of those requirements is to allow for the opportunity to display normal patterns of behaviour. Salmon famously, as you point out, need to be transient and travel hundreds and hundreds of miles as part of their normal normal breeding cycle. So keeping them in a fish farm is, is abhorrent. In the same way, I guess, for example, as keeping any sort of chicken um, in, uh, in, in in an enclosed environment where they can't forage and scratch um, and engage in their natural uh, behaviours is abhorrent as well. Um, but I think that generally we could sort of recognise that that's, as a, as a country, we would say, yeah, no, look, that's not ideal for the chicken and that's really problematic and we should stop that. I, I don't think even people go that far when they think about salmon. They don't think of the salmon and um, the chicken in the same way, despite there being far more similarities than differences but I guess it really sort of emphasizes your mentioning of profit really sort of emphasizes the fundamental flaw in our animal welfare system and it's a system systemic flaw that is basically in every country throughout the world that there is a trade-off that allow that, that, that that's allowable under the animal welfare systems that acknowledges that animals are the property of humans and that humans can do whatever they want with them so long as that purpose is necessary and reasonable and making money is considered necessary and reasonable. Um, There's a famous case in New Zealand, well, famous within animal law circles in the 1970s, and it was a question as to whether or not it was uh, legitimate for farmers to uh, cut off the tails of cows without anaesthetic. 
in the Court of Appeal in this country, so at the time, pretty much our highest court in the land, said that, look, if you were just doing it for fun, then obviously it wouldn't be allowed because this causes significant pain to the cow, but also they can't switch away flies, for example, when they're in the paddock. It causes all sorts of problems. But cutting the tails off allowed uh, the milkers uh, to not get hit in the face by by, uh, the the tails. Uh, And as a result, that would improve the efficiency of the milking operation. And because it would improve the efficiency of the milking operation, it was a proportionate and necessary act without anesthetic, right? So there's always a good justification um, to engage in what would otherwise be seen as significant animal cruelty. Um, and that justification is always going to be a profit motive. And that's the significant flaw that we've got within any animal welfare system. Um, so I fully much acknowledge, I fully acknowledge that essentially arguing for better enforcement of a very bad system is probably not the most progressive of, of, of stances to take. And ultimately, of course, I would love to see the sort of abolition of animal uh, property and animal ownership completely. But on steps on the road would be the first, the first step would be to sort of A, recognize that fish can feel uh, and B, enforce uh, animal welfare legislation when it comes to fish. Fish is pretty much one of the biggest blind spots that we've got in this country. Um, we could fix that tomorrow um, if we really wanted to. Uh, but there are so many vested interests and so many profit motors at play that um, I don't think that's going to be on the cards for some time, even if it should be. For some, it might sound utopian or, or radical or revolutionary, but that vision of abolishing that whole system of uh, property ownership of other sentient beings. And maybe that's something you could elaborate on a little bit. What would that be in, in effect for, for us as a society and, and what we do to our uh, relationships to uh, other animals and even the and, uh, environment, something that we haven't touched upon yet at all, like the purpose of farming, if it's just about making money, uh, to, to change that from farming as a, as a service to society, including uh, nature itself and including all the non-human animals who all are due to benefit from what, whatever happens on the land. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of synergies and um, sort of relationships between the uh, wider sort of environmentalist movement and the animal liberation movement. And the, the most obvious similarity is that essentially, if we operate in partnership with the environment uh, and just generally, um, and we include non-human animals within that, that sphere, uh, then we wouldn't uh, ever assume that Uh, animals are a resource for ours to exploit just in the same way as we wouldn't assume that the rainforest, for example, is a resource for ours to exploit. And so sort of reforming our thinking about exactly where we are in the world and what our place is in the world and how we operate within that world is, is, is all part of the same story. Um, I guess there are two sort of schools of thought within animal law uh, about the, the future and the utopia that we can envisage. Um, as you sort of indicate, there's this idea of abolitionism, um, which is basically sort of, uh, um, uh, one could say it's a radical, not necessarily in a pejorative or a bad way. It's simply acknowledging that the only effective way of achieving justice in, uh, for, for our non-human 
animal um, family uh, is to accept that we shouldn't be able to own them and that they have autonomy and that they have capacity to feel um, both positive and negative uh, emotional states such that we should respect that and work with them and sort of engage with them in a way that is a respectful relationship. Um, that would mean sort of the end of, of agricultural uh, farming of animals as we know it. Um, uh, it would represent a huge chain, change in the way that our society is, is made up of. We'd, would lose the backbone of New Zealand's economy and we'd have to, to look to something else. And I think that the natural conclusion is that we would all become vegan um, by default. So I think that there is a, the other school of thought, it's called the welfare school of thought, sort of sees that as a utopia, but a problematic utopia, because if we focus on that, we need to acknowledge that maybe that's never going to happen. And a failure to achieve that utopia will let a lot of people off the hook. And so the other school of thought is they say, look, keep the property status, but try to make sure that the welfare of animals that uh, are in that system is that the best that it possibly can be. Um, and there are a lot of people that fall between those camps. I think that there are ways of changing the property status that we have of animals. An idea is called living property, for example. So sort of acknowledging that it's a little bit different um, from, say, this, this coffee cup. Um, at the moment, um, a dog has exactly the same sort of rights and interests as this coffee cup, which makes no sense. Um, and so perhaps sort of recognising that there is a, a midpoint of sort of keeping the property status of animals, but acknowledging that they have autonomy and capacity to feel uh, feelings, and therefore we should respect that. Um, but yeah, the, the most utopian uh, approach to this would say that we basically end the property status of animals tomorrow, and that wouldn't necessitate a massive change. I think the other school of thought is a more gradualist, incrementalist, let's try and improve the lot for animals um, as best we can within the current confines of the system. If a farming industry would have to pay for all the costs, the externalities, the environmental damage, they're actually draining our economy. And uh, that not, not even includes cost to public health sector because people do get sick from overconsumption of animal products. I agree that once we actually took into the total costs to New Zealand's environment and public health generally, then we would see a very different calculation. And for example, rewilding re Southland or something like that. I was just driving through Southland and sort of just saw sort of the opportunity that we would have to sort of create a tourist paradise, essentially, of, of clean rivers and beautiful sort of natural native forests again and that sort of thing. Uh, that is, to me, a far more sort of economically viable option as well as being sort of healthier for us and the planet. Um, and so we've got a lot of short-term thinking, I think, with regards to sort of New Zealand's economic future, which is a, just a tragedy, but unfortunately tends to be part of the course. How does all of that, what we are talking about, fit in with Tikanga Māori, with Titiriti or Waitangi, with uh, our Indigenous people in this uh, country? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm I'm no expert in in, in tikanga, but I but I have done a lot of reading and, and research in this area. And the simple point is is that the two gel together almost perfectly. The treaty in Article Two recognizes that Māori have stewardship over the tanga, which includes the natural environment. And 
Māori for a long time before sort of European um, colonisation and invasion um, really had a good symbiotic relationship uh, with uh, the, the, the whenua here in New Zealand and Aotearoa. Um, and it's something that we could learn from uh, a lot. Um, it's only when we see sort of uh, colonialism in New Zealand that we see the, the, the destruction of our natural environment on a scale that was essentially irreparable. Um, it's only when we sort of see uh, that sort of level of, of harm uh, that we see sort of mass extinction events and sort of the pollution of, uh, of our environment. And so I think returning to a, a far more sort of symbiotic relationship with uh, our environment and stewardship of our uh, native flora and fauna, um, I think that we would sort of stand to do a whole lot better. So I think that sort of trying to go back to a much more productive and respectful relationship with non-human animals uh, and the environment generally not only upholds the treaty, but I think would be sort of a, a positive step um, for the nation as a whole. All of what we talked about, this uh, in the welfare reforms or even this utopian vision uh, would be very much in line with uh, decolonizing uh, efforts uh, of, of this country and uh, taking a stance uh, against this um, injustice that, that, that was brought about by colonization. Totally. The intersectionalities are there. So I, I, I think that it's all part of the bigger project. So much more that we could talk about. This is such a great topic. Um, and so inspiring also to hear all of your opinions and answers, Marcelo. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. It sounds like we would need to have you back sometime to, to go into even more detail. Well, uh, happy to do it. It's been a real pleasure to be on your show. As always, we leave you with a message from our sponsors at DCC Waste Management to reduce waste in as many ways as possible. And in our opinion, a great way to do this is to stop supporting industries and production that lead to the abundant waste of natural resources and animal lives. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.